Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. A day you've given us to worship, Lord. Thank you for a chance to gather together and glorify you. Lord, we thank you for this time of year that we get to remember when Jesus Christ came in the flesh. We thank you for a good God, Lord. You are a good Father. You sent your Son as a Savior to us, Lord, that those of us who believe we don't need to perish, Lord, but we get to live with you forever. Lord, I pray now that you'd open the eyes and the ears of our hearts to your word. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Adam Sandwick. I have the privilege of serving here as an elder of Enid M.B. Church. I'm not the regular pastor here. Um, Christmas time, we just have some vacations around here, people gone. I wanted to remind us real quick about the last two weeks of our Advent series that Gary preached on two weeks ago. He talked about Jesus being the human lineage of the king, being in Jesus. So using scripture, he pointed back to how Jesus was a rightful heir through his human ancestry to the throne of David over Israel. And last week, he talked about the divine lineage of the king being in Christ. Also using scripture showing that Jesus Christ was not just a man, but he was fully God, the son of God come in the flesh. So he's fully God and fully man. This week we're talking about the birth of the king. I don't know if you've seen the passage that we're going to be at. It's in the bulletin. There's some notes there. You may wonder, why are we looking at John 18 in relation to the Christmas story? I've long said that this is my favorite Christmas passage, and we'll get to there in a little bit, and you'll see how it relates. But uh, in this passage, Pilate famously asks Jesus, what is truth? Ligonier's Ministry is an international Christian discipleship organization founded in 1971 by the late theologian Dr. R.C. Sproul's for the express purpose of equipping Christians to articulate what they believe, why they believe it, how to live it out, and how to share it. Proclaiming God's holiness is central to Ligonier's purpose. They do this through radio broadcasts, books, magazines, teaching series, academic degrees, conferences, and online media. In fact, EMB has used and continues to use material from Ligonier's ministry. Recently, along with LifeWay Research, they've conducted a survey every two years to take the theological temperature of the U.S. to help Christians better understand the current culture. So the recent eight, the 2018 survey was just released, or the results were just released. They do this, uh, they take it from approximately 3,000 demographically balanced adults, uh, and it uncovered some eye-opening facts. Now before you say, wait, they didn't call me, you just need to know some things about statistics and polling. The number, the sample size they used, allows them the confidence to extrapolate the data across the broader population. And the way they do this, uh, they take 34 theological statements that they present to the participants of the survey, and they ask the participants of the survey to respond in one of five ways. Strongly agree, agree, not sure, disagree, or strongly disagree. I'll give you a conclusion statement before I go through some of this, but their overall conclusion of all of the survey 
all of the participants, so believers and unbelievers alike, was that overall, U.S. adults appear to have a superficial attachment to well-known Christian beliefs. For example, a majority agreed that Jesus died on the cross for sin and that he rose from the dead. However, they rejected the Bible's teaching on the gravity of man's sin, the importance of the church's gathering together for worship, and the Holy Spirit. There's a website out there. You could get there through the Ligonier's website, but they also put it out there. It's called thestateoftheology.com. On the bottom of the sermon notes, I've listed the website there. But they've provided all kinds of tools where you can break it out by demographic age, uh, religion, or identified religion. Um, and as the sample sizes get smaller, the margin of error gets larger. But overall, like I said, the results were eye-opening. Uh, so I thought we'd do a little, a little exercise here. This is not for public display, but just think to yourself of, of these five responses. Strongly agree, agree, not sure, disagree, or strongly disagree. I'm going to read a sampling of the statements that they just gave. Um, number one, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Uh, another one. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. A third one. Everyone sins a little, but people are basically good. Everyone sins a little, but people are basically good. Jesus, or pardon me, excuse me, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. The Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. The Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. The last one I'll use here. The Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. The Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. And so, like I said, they got from respondents how they identified uh, what faith they identify with, to what degree they identify with that faith. Um, and after compiling those results, they even said, these results show there's a pressing need for Christians to be taught Christology. That just means the study of Christ, Christology. There is a general lack of teaching today on the person of Christ, a doctrine for which the early church fought so hard. So in connection with this, I came across this quote that convicted me personally. There's this Danish philosopher and theologian from the 19th century. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. And he himself was a Christian. But in his writings, he often took issue with those that professed faith in Christ or professed to be Christians, but their lives proved otherwise. In other words, no fruit in their lives that they were in fact believers. So in his book, Provocations, he writes, The Bible is very easy to understand but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. 
we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. He quotes Hebrews 10, 31 there. Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. So I like this quote because of what he's pointing out is that all of us tend to kind of pick and choose or like he, the words he says, we, we pretend to be unable to understand. But as good as that quote is, he's not the first to make the observation, right? James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, do what it says. So it's not enough to just hear it, hear it and not do anything about it. James says we're deceiving ourselves that Christ, that we're followers of Christ because we're not obeying. Even Jesus on earth, right? He says in John 14, 15 and other places, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Or even in the story of Matthew 7, where he talks about the man who built his house on the sand, he, right? What does he say? Those who hear my words, but don't put them into practice or don't obey is like the fool who built his house on sand. It's just certain destruction will come when the storms of life come. And even Jesus himself was echoing what was repeated all throughout the Old Testament. To obey is better than sacrifice. So to wrap that up, many who claim to follow Christ refuse to let the Bible inform their thinking and behavior. So this is the social and religious climate of the church today. I'm going to read our text now. This is uh, John 18, 33 through 38. If you don't have a Bible, we have these hardback black ones in the pews around you. Uh... I'm going to be on page 904 of that Bible. Also, if you don't own a Bible, you can take that. We make this our gift to you. Uh, we believe strongly that the Word of God is uh, what is useful for teaching, correcting, reproving, and training us for all righteousness. So this is John 18, 33 through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So, as we go through this passage, a little background likely you're familiar that as Jesus was accused by the religious leaders and the Jews of his day, they marched him before different authorities, and before each authority, they threw a different accusation out there based on what they felt would stick, right? And so they get to Pilate. And so their accusation, as we see in Luke 23, 1 through 2, is that Jesus has set himself up against Rome, against Caesar, and is claiming to be a king. So Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews based on what the accusers said? And verse 34 at first blush, might feel like Jesus is trying to hide something, right? Do you say this of your own accord or do others say this about you? I feel like Jesus just wants to know the motivation behind Pilate's question. If Pilate wants to know if he is a king to threaten Rome or Caesar, 
then the answer is no. Make a mental note here. We'll come back and talk a little bit about this, what that would mean. But if Pilate is asking if Jesus is the Messiah, then the answer is yes. I believe that's all the reason Jesus asked why he's asking the question. But it seems like in verse 35, Pilate wasn't too amused at being questioned by Jesus, the prisoner. So he reasserts himself as the questioner, right? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And so in 36 here is where we get Jesus' claim for his kingdom. But he reassures Pilate that he's no rebel or insurrectionist, right? Violence was the mark of those who claimed the throne on their own. He says, if it were of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. So he says, in, this, in essence, I have a kingdom, but it's not what you're thinking. And so... Verse 37, now he gets Pilate's full attention. He says, in the NIV, it says, you are a king then. Here it just says, uh, so you are a king. Either way, he's got his attention, right? Uh, And then Jesus, yes, he acknowledges his kingship. He says, I am, or you say that I am. Yes, I am a king. But then he tells his destiny from birth. This is why I say this is my favorite Christmas passage, because he goes all the way back to his birth. He doesn't say, this is my destiny after things broke down and I got arrested in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't say, this is my destiny uh, after Judas agreed to betray me. He says, this is my destiny from birth. Like, the reason I came, even the words he used, came into the world, he says the reason I was born and came into the world, called to mind his preexistence. It makes us think of John 1.1 where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us or dwelt among us. Jesus existed before the incarnation. So the whole purpose of his birth was this moment where he's testifying to truth. He says, to testify to truth uh, or bear witness to the truth. To testify, I think we would all acknowledge or recognize testify just means to give evidence to something or it can be to serve as the evidence, right? So somebody that's test- as a witness in a court of law is testifying to the evidence. Or you could take the evidence itself, right? The changing colors of the leaves testify that it's fall. So the evidence itself can testify. So here I would say Christ is the evidence to the truth. So he's testifying to the truth. The ESV there says bear witness to. Bear witness just to show that something exists. So Christ is the one showing that truth exists. Bear witness to the truth. Throughout the book of John, the word witness or testify or testimony is used 33 times describing the attestation or the agreement of Jesus' character and power. And then there in 38, Pilate famously asks, what is truth? So let's examine and define what truth is. We'll do a quick word study. I'm going to give a lot of scriptures here. You don't necessarily have to flip to. I'll read a lot, but I'll definitely give scripture references here. So a quick word study on truth and scripture. We're told that four things are truth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. And we're just going to examine those a little bit. First, God the Father is truth. In Psalm 31, verse 5, the psalmist says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Isaiah 65, 16. 
Isaiah writing says, whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Jesus praying after the last supper in John 17 verse 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then in 1 John chapter 5 20, John writes, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So there he's talking about him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. So him who is true is God the Father. Secondly, God the Son is truth. Jesus himself says in John fourteen six, you've heard this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 8, 31, 32, and 36, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So who sets us free? It's the Son, and it's the truth. Gary Crandall, our interim pastor, he's written a book, True Discipleship. In it, he says, he's talking about this same passage. He says, the truth that makes us free is identified as the son who makes us free. In order to know the truth, one must know Jesus. So God the Father is truth. God the Son is truth. Thirdly, God the Holy Spirit is truth. 1 John chapter 5 again, verse 6. He says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. Testifies to what? Testifies to what Jesus did when he came. John 14, this is Jesus speaking about the Spirit. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in, in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Again, John 16, 5 and following, the truth personified by the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, guides us into truth, and brings glory to Jesus Christ. So to the Spirit, his job is to remind us of what Jesus taught, which is the truth. Finally, God, the, the word of God is truth. Jesus prays in John 17 again, 17 verse 17, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So I wanted to break out here in a little study on the word, word. As we said earlier in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus prayed, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, but Jesus is also called the word. The divine revelation of God, the truth. When we hear that phrase, the word, we may not understand fully why John opens his gospel that way. But ancient Greek, Greek philosophers, pardon me, even Hindus and Buddhists, each had a concept of the word. The Greek word was logos. But they had a concept of the word that referred to order, speech, reason, principle, the standard, uh, 
And like I, they even used logos to describe a universal law that ordered the cosmos. So by the time John's writing his, epis- writing his gospel, it's well known this idea of the logos or the word. But he's writing to say, what you say is an unknown force is an identified person. It's Jesus Christ in the flesh, the word. So Jesus is called the word. The word is called truth. Jesus says in John 3.21, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So God's word is truth. It's his divine self-revelation. So God the Father is truth. God the Son is truth. God the Holy Spirit is truth. And the word of God is truth. We'll look real quickly at how other New Testament writers use the word truth. More from John in chapter 1 verse 17. This is still the prologue to his gospel. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So everything Jesus taught and modeled is referred to as truth. Paul uses the word truth a lot. You'll see a theme, common theme with him. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So what's the truth? What are they setting forth? It's the gospel. The truth is the gospel. Same thing in 1 Timothy 2, 1, 1 and following. It says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge, complete, precise, and correct knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in his proper time. The truth is Christ's ransoming work for all men. Even 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, God's household, which is the church of the living God, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is God's plan to uphold and to bolster the truth, the pillar and the foundation. The truth is the gospel. Even 2 Timothy 2, 15, that's our Awana verse, right? Some Present yourself as one who correctly handles the word of truth. The truth is God's divine revealed word. Uh, more examples from Paul, Romans 1, 18, Romans 2, 8, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10. Now from James, who we learn in scripture through the gospels, he didn't initially believe that his half-brother Jesus was the Christ, right? Uh, he doubted. It wasn't until Jesus appeared to him, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that then he becomes a prominent leader in the early church and one that does accept that Jesus was the Christ. In his letter, chapter 1, verse 18, James says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. How are we born again? We're born again through the gospel. The truth is the gospel. The gospel is truth. He echoes this in James five nineteen and 20. My brothers, if one of you should wonder from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The truth is the saving truth of the gospel. And finally, Peter, who denied the truth in the moment of trial, remember this, but himself was restored by the truth after the resurrection. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, 
Now you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and enduring word of God. So the truth is the gospel. It's the living and enduring word of God. Second Peter 1, 12 and following, he says, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. And he goes on to talk about the gospel more. So the truth is the gospel, our salvation through Jesus Christ, as Peter has communicated throughout his writings. He himself, as he says, was an eyewitness of his majesty, Jesus Christ's majesty. So Peter can also serve as a witness or testimony to the truth. So to wrap up, the truth is more than mere fact. Truth that we see all throughout the Bible is God's divine word revealed to us through his law and prophets and all of scripture. And in the flesh through his son, the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, and also in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It's his divine self-revelation. The connection with those Ligonier survey results I shared with the Kierkegaard quote and with this is many who claim to follow Christ refuse to let the Bible inform their thinking and their behavior There's a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live. There is such a thing as absolute truth. And ever since the fall in Genesis 3, all of mankind has been butting our heads. Me, you, we've all been butting our heads against the truth in efforts to live how we want to live, to be in control or seem to be in control of our lives or to rule our own lives. Which brings me to the second point I want to make from Jesus' conversation with Pilate, that Jesus is the king. Let me give a a little bit of historical context here. It might help us understand some of this conversation or back and forth. Herod the Great was the king of the Jews at this time, or at the time of Jesus' birth. He really was a Roman client king of Judea. He was partially Jewish, but he was fiercely loyal to Rome, which didn't sit well with the Jews. He even tormented the Jewish people. This was the Herod who was the king at the time of Jesus' birth and ordered the killing of infants in and around Bethlehem after his interaction with the Magi. When he died around the time of Jesus' birth, he had two sons that each made their case for his throne. And this went on with many years with them having to appeal to Rome for the right to uh, succeed their father. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, after Herod's death, chaos ruled the Judean kingdom. This is a quote from his Antiquities of the Jews. And thus did a great and wild fury spread itself over the nation because they had no king to keep the multitude in good order. He details, Josephus that is, details several insurrections that happened during this time, listing people by name and atrocities that they, they were parts of. Here's a quote from his antiquities again. And now Judea was full of robberies. And as the several companies of the seditious lighted upon anyone to head them, so as all these groups found somebody to lead them. He was created king immediately in order to do mischief to the public. They were in some small measure indeed and in small matters hurtful to the Romans. So they were thorn in the side of the Romans, but the murders they committed upon their own people lasted a long while. So Rome, they begin crushing any revolt. At one point, a Roman general Varus crucified some 2000 Jews who'd been part of a rebellion there's a man named Gratus who is Pilate's predecessor. He used lethal force to crush rebellions. Even Pilate used force to crush rebellions. We see in Luke 13 verse 1. Now there was some present at that time who told Jesus 
about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. So this is the social and political climate at the time of Jesus's ministry. And I think this is why Pilate takes interest in the accusation that Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews, right? What we've seen through history is that whoever claims to be king of the Jews is not just a thorn in the side of the Romans, but the whole country as well, his own people. And so Jesus tells Pilate he is the king. What does this mean to us? Jesus' earthly ministry was anything but kingly by the world's standards. From the humble beginnings, being born in a stable in Bethlehem, not born in the palace in Jerusalem like the king of the Jews would have been. When he started his ministry, he sought out the lowly and the common and despised to come learn from him. Right from Going from the shepherds at his birth, the birth announcement to the shepherds, not to the distinguished and the noble to when he starts his ministry calling fishermen and tax collectors his disciples. He didn't seek status or position. We talked about this a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Even though he was God in the flesh, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or to use for his own advantage while he was on earth. We're even told in John 6, verse 60 and following, that his, even his followers started to thin out because they realized this wasn't what we expected. He told many parables relating his kingdom to things that start small and grow exponentially. For example, the mustard seed, yeast, the grain seed. He told us the kind of king that he is in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Take my, um, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served like you would expect from a king, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So even though it wasn't kingly by the world standards, Jesus Christ was the king that God promised to send. His teaching was different than others. We see that in Matthew 7, 29, Mark 1, 22, Mark 6, 2, Luke 4, 32. All these places say, the people were amazed because he taught with authority and power. In fact, after feeding the 5,000, John records in chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 of his gospel, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Right there, they're hearkening back to what Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy, that God would send another prophet to rule over the people. So they say, this must be the prophet that's to come. But Jesus, it goes on, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why? Why did he do this? Well, the truth is we don't make him king. He is the king. We just need to acknowledge that he's the king. His triumphal entry on earth was the most kingly thing he did on earth. And even that was humble, right? He rode into Jerusalem as in a procession, except he rode in on a donkey, not a war horse like a king at that time would have rode in. He allowed the crowds to herald him, which he hadn't up until that point, right? Remember they yelled, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. As we've seen in the last two Advent sermons, in Jesus was the human lineage of the king and the divine lineage of the king. It was no small thing for people to call him the son of David. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 prophesies this exactly. It says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. 
See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's verse 9. Here's 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So verse 9 prophesied his first coming, and it happened exactly like it said it would. Verse 10 That hasn't happened yet. So we know that's a prophecy of his second coming. And we can be confident that it will happen just like it says it was. Because the first part happened just like it said it would. Even his birthplace prophecy includes second coming language as the king. This is in Micah chapter 5. It says, But you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Again, prophecies about both Jesus' first and second comings are written, spoken together. And we can be confident that the latter will come true, just like the former. So why does it matter that Jesus is king? Yes, he was a king when he came, but it was a suffering servant king. It was a king to save us and redeem us. But he's coming again as a king. We see in Revelations 19, Revelation 22, 2 Thessalonians 1. His second coming will be much more in line with what we think of as kingly, even more so, right? He'll come with armies, conquering armies, to defeat evil forever. As we saw in some of those old prophecies, there will be peace on earth forever. So I want to circle back to the survey results I shared at the beginning, which tie in with the idea of truth which ties into Jesus' claim as king. Not just king of the world, but king of our lives. All of us are hesitant to submit all of our lives to the king of kings. We may agree that what he says is good, but do we live like what he says is the word of truth from the king, from our king? Or do we pick and choose which commands in scripture we allow to inform our choices? Things like financial decisions, our marriage our parenting decisions, our giving, our serving, how we speak, our words, our gossip, rumors, just little white lies. Look, let's celebrate with much joy of the birth of Jesus Christ, our King, this Christmas. But if your appetite for Jesus ends in the manger, in the stable in Bethlehem, then you've completely missed the point of Christmas. As Jesus said to Pilate, the whole purpose for his coming was to make sure that the truth which had been veiled before he came, was clearly seen. Right? Isaiah chapter 9, I love this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. That hasn't happened yet. Establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That hasn't happened yet. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We're the ones walking in darkness right now. To whom the great light, Jesus Christ, now shines. We're the ones living in the land of the shadow of death. Jesus Christ came into the world as a baby and we celebrate that. But he's going to return as a conquering king and we eagerly anticipate that. Advent isn't just the coming of Christ the baby. 
Advent means coming, and we're looking forward and anticipating his second coming as a conquering king. I'm going to pray for us. Father, you are the king. I confess that there are times I don't live like you're the king. Lord, I just pray that you would open our eyes to your word. It's the truth. It's the only truth worth living for. So many times we set ourselves above it for our own pleasures or our own control, what we think is control. We just rejoice, Lord, that you came, you sent your son, not just to be a baby born for a good story, but for the redemption of all mankind from now and forevermore. Amen.